Welcome to the Bike Pack Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski. This podcast was created so as to share the stories of bike tours, bike packers, and endurance cyclists from around the world as they embark on amazing adventures. Through their stories, you'll be able to learn the ins and outs of bike travel. You'll get insight into various countries and cultures around the world, hear fantastic stories of their journeys. Through both mine and my guests' experiences, you'll learn about the pros and cons of specific gear, bikes, and bike setups. If you're new to bike travel and considering going on an adventure, I hope the podcast provides you with that extra little bit of motivation to make it happen. I want to thank Panorama Cycles, Redshift Sports, Restrap, Race Day Fuel, and Brockman Cyclery for supporting Bike Pack Adventures and helping to keep me on the bike. Check out the show notes for more information about these amazing companies. Thanks and keep on pedaling. Welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures Podcast. I am your host, Chris Panaski, and I interview bike tourists from around the world to bring you stories of their adventures and experiences. These are people who get out there and leave the comfort zone of the typical 9 to 5 to embark on ambitious adventures and take on challenges that most people can only dream about. If you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with other bike tours you know, or anyone else you think may be interested. If you want to get in touch, you can email me at info at biketouradventures.com or find me on Facebook and Instagram at Bike Tour Adventures. In episode 26 of Bike Tour Adventures, I speak with Adam Hugo, a Yorkshireman that just so happened to be my first guest on my first ever podcast episode. A lot has happened in the 11 months since you last heard from him, and today we're going to talk about how the tour changed his life, how he adapted his bike to the ever-changing circumstances of worldwide travel, where he is now, and what's next for him. Adam, good to talk to you again, mate. How's it going, mate? You all right? Yeah, I'm good. I guess we could start from uh, from the start. Um, seeing as you were the first episode person, and uh, well, I mean, you and Lucia were the first episode a lot has happened since then. You want to just kind of give us a, a rundown? Yeah, it's been a bit of a whirlwind. So the last episode I did, um, I was at your place in Cambodia yeah. at the time. And uh, so I set off on my big old bike trip from from Singapore, really. That's where it started with Lucia. And we cycled from Singapore up through to China and then from China back down to Cambodia and to cut it really short, but we can definitely go into it, I, uh, me and Lucia parted ways. Uh, we decided to go in our separate ways. We broke up. Our relationship broke up. And she went back to the UK and has got a job, and she's gone back into teaching. And his, it went there, and I continued on the bike. I, from there, uh, flew to South Korea from Bangkok and then cycled through South Korea, cycled through Japan, and then made my way to Alaska and cycled from Alaska down through the United States. And then I called a day on my bike trip after after 18 months on the road. And I'm now in England. Bike trip finished and I'm sat in my, my house and <laughs> it feels very strange to be back. I've been back in the UK for a month now. So there's lots of changes and adjustments and there's probably quite a lot to go into there. Well, I think that's basically the podcast recorded. Let's call it a day. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's the synopsis. What was it like cycling in Korea and Japan? I mean, after you had been spending so much time in the southeast part of Asia, and English is really widely spoken there, um, what was it like to change jumping into Korea, flying from Bangkok? Yeah, flying flying from Bangkok, going from Bangkok to, to Seoul, 
is an absolute change. The weather, the the culture, the people, uh, it's just a whole new level. You go into Seoul and it's like this futuristic airport with robots that show you to where the oversized baggage is to collect my bike and I'm like, this is a world away from Bangkok. And I suppose that's the beauty of bike travel often, is usually going over borders and mm-hmm. you're seeing the world change subtly. So when you fly to somewhere, and it feels so different. And South Korea is unique in that way that it's, it's pretty almost impossible to get there without flying. Um, I'm sure you can get boats from China. Uh, there is that option. But, uh, yeah, so I flew into Seoul. And I, I suppose I'd just broken up from a relationship at that point. So there was my own personal issues. I was working out, just being by myself, having spent the previous nine months, more or less, with the same person for every minute of every day. And then to go from that to South Korea, which the people don't speak as much English, definitely, but the people are still equally, when they do speak to you, they're, they're amazing. If you're super friendly, I'd mm-hmm. like it, like everywhere else in the world, had so many offers of hospitality and kindness. And I, uh, I yeah, made my way down through, down the Four Rivers route to, uh, to what's the name of the town? Down to the middle of the city. I can't remember to, the name uh, now. Dejan or? Dejan, yeah, that's it, yeah. So I made my way to Dejan. Uh, I met up with one of your um, previous guests, whom, who Arthur, the the French cyclist who cycles on a bamboo bike. Oh yes, that's where we met. He he just spent uh, a month in prison for flying his drone in Myanmar. So uh, I just broken up from a relationship. He'd just been in jail for a month. So so these two lost souls met each other in South Korea, and we spent about ten days together. So uh, that was that was unique, and that was really good. I made a real friend that day. And then for the next the next couple of weeks, yeah. Uh, but yeah, South Korea was wonderful. It seemed like um, your videos throughout the South Korea and maybe little parts of the Japan part weren't as captivating, or weren't they were just different, quite a bit different than Southeast Asia. I mean, I guess a lot of that has to do with the fact that now you're on your own and you're trying to find how you're going to engage your viewers. Do you think it was partially also the culture of the lack of English and I don't know. Well, possibly. Yeah, it's hard to look back at. I, I look back at some of my career in Japan videos and I have really fond memories there. So it's very different for me, I suppose, I as guess. somebody that's made them to, to view them compared to somebody that's just watching them as, uh, I don't know if you're watching it from a blank space. And uh, I suppose there's a bit of everything you just said. Uh, there's me before, the dynamic of filming with another person. And when I filmed the journey, so I filmed it all the way from buying a bike and cycling mm-hmm. the, the whole way. And me and Lucia had a, our way of, like, I'd usually film her most of the time. It's much easier to film somebody else than it is to film yourself. So it's getting used to just filming myself and the whole setting up the camera, going back, going forward. Probably lost a little bit of motivation for filming at, initially in South Korea, but uh, I, I, the the video the reason I made videos was because I wanted to have another project alongside my bike touring. I wanted to do something creative, and it I felt it going and cycling around the world rather than going to film school is a really good way to to teach yourself how to tell a story. Yeah, and that, that's pretty much what well, it was. One of my big motivations for for doing a big old adventure. So, yeah, the South Korea stuff and Japan, I think it was a little bit the culture as well. People are a lot shyer and they're a lot less forward, particularly compared to somewhere like Thailand, where they're going to be like shouting hello, Sawadikap, uh, down the streets. Whereas in South Korea, you'll say, you'll say hello to somebody and they're probably just going to 
like be shy and not want to speak to you. And another big thing was they, they everyone in South Korea had, because it was summer time, it was like April, May time, they had a lot of their face covered. Um, they had because they're really protective about keeping their skin uh, white mm-hmm. in the in the sun. So it's quite hard when you're only seeing people's eyes all the time. It's quite hard to gauge and get a connection with some people. Sometimes I found that a bit difficult. We used to get a good laugh of that when I lived in South Korea. Was the uh, you'd see the older Korean women, the ajima, like the, the the grandmothers or mothers, and they got long sleeves on and the little white gloves on top, and then they have like a neck scarf pulled up over to their nose, and then they have, they're wearing a big ass sun visor coming right down over their face, and nothing is getting sun. Yeah, it, I, I took a little bit of um, inspiration from it. Cause at the time I'd been in Southeast Asia, I was using sun cream on my arms mm. and my face all the time, and I was like, this stuff's expensive. So I bought myself some some like sleeves, just some like sleeves to protect your arms uh, from the sun. And I wore them for the next the whole rest of the journey. Yeah, they became yeah invaluable. They sa- probably saved me a load of money in sunblock and sun cream. Mm-hmm. And as, once you've been on a bike for ages, I, I just I don't really want to get sunburned. It's, it's horrible. So that was I took a little bit That's of that point. from the from the South Koreans. Yeah, it was quite good. You uh, you modified your route and your timings a lot. Um, kind of pushed through Japan at a, a bit of a faster pace than you originally planned. Why is this? Yeah, I I change my plans all the time. I'm a nightmare for it. I I have like an idea, and I don't know I don't know exactly why I do this, but I suppose there's a few factors. Um, I was really ready to go to Alaska. I knew Alaska was on the horizon. Flight was booked. And I did initially plan to go all the way to Hokkaido, to the very top of Japan, and then come all the way down through there. But instead, I decided to go to Alaska a month earlier than I initially okay. planned. So I think I went to Alaska, it had been June, mid-June, I believe. I was just thinking about now. And I, I wanted to make sure I could spend as much time in good weather in Alaska because the weather in Alaska is really important if you if you're going and trying to go all the way to the top of the Arctic Circle and I'm sure it is achievable at any time of the year but the weather and equipment you need vastly differs depending on the time of the year so yeah I'm, I'm very glad I made this decision looking back now retrospectively but it, it was it was often yeah weather-based weather-focused and I suppose I really enjoyed cycling Japan I, I cycled I think about 21 22 days in a row without taking a day off and I never do that I'm very much a five days on two or three days off type of person not on a bike tour normally but for some reason i just really got into the groove in japan that might be yeah that might be a good reason um a good explanation if you would have delayed it a month as originally planned i mean you would have been cycling through a lot more snow going south into the u.s and stuff later on yeah it really gave me the the space and the freedom to just take my time as soon as i got to alaska so i landed in anchorage yeah it was mid-june and i took i think it was five days off when i landed in anchorage and that allowed me to get my bike ready get supplies spend time with mm-hmm. some people that get used to the change in the, the, the 24-hour sunlight that was quite a, an adjustment especially in when you're getting up right to the top of, of Alaska near the summer solstice. Before we jump into Alaska I want to ask you what is the the best way in your experience of destroying front panniers? <laughs> oh yeah I am um, oh, and what should you listen to while you're doing this? <laughs> Yeah, so I had my setup was pretty traditional with a two front, two back all lead panniers on my bicycle, and I was, I was, I think, I was, what was I doing on my? I think I was just looking at the map on my phone while cycling, 
and wouldn't recommend this to anybody. It's very dangerous. But I was looking at my phone, very quiet road in Japan, and you drive on the left in Japan, so just like the UK, very used to that. And there was a, there was a silver, there was a um, fence, like kind of a bit of a road fence, and I drove the left-hand side of my left pannier into this fence, completely ripped it off, destroyed it. And I think this was the second time I'd done this. So at that point, my panniers were all pretty, the left-hand pannier was pretty destroyed. My right-hand pannier from riding in Southeast Asia had low, multiple holes in the bottom. So I just decided to eventually ditch the panniers. And I think one was clamped on already as it was at that point. Right? That's right. Yeah. I was using like a hose clamp. So all the, yeah, I probably could have salvaged it and kept going with it, but I'd been thinking about changing my, my load setup for quite a while already. And I think this is something that will happen to anybody that stays on a bike for multiple bike tours is you, you see how other people do things. You may probably start too heavy and then end up going lighter. That's how I found it for myself. And I was definitely on the heavier side of, of yeah. people's load and I definitely got it down. I was never super light because I was carrying a laptop and I was carrying all my camera equipment. And uh, yeah, it wasn't my aim to do it super fast, but uh, I definitely reduced the load. And I ended up putting a couple of big bottle cages. I think there were salsa, anything cages. Mm-hmm. And I put a couple of dry bags on the front. So I could only, I reduced the amount I could carry quite drastically there. And I didn't, think that was an issue at all it seemed to seem to work quite well okay i seem to remember you were talking uh when you when you voice messaged me after the accident you said uh you were listening to my podcast and it was exactly talking about somebody crashing at the time oh i was yeah that's correct (laughs) yeah i was yeah listening to a podcast and looking at my map on the phone really bad really bad combination the worst thing was i didn't i didn't hurt myself but i had my because i'd got my phone out of my handlebar bag my bag was still open, so my camera spilled all over the road, and then these Japanese guys walked back, and it was just really past me, and it was just really embarrassing. <laughs> that was the worst thing, just like picking up all my camera equipment and putting it back in the bike. It's like, oh. That's and that's another way you see that the Japanese, um, the, the, not the culture, not to say they're, they're not kind people, but because of the lack of English skills or the nervousness of using English, they're more likely just to kind of pass you without stopping where maybe in yeah. a lot of places in Southeast Asia, they would have probably stopped. Like, like, oh, sir, are you okay? Like Malaysia, for sure. I know that. Too. Absolutely. I would agree. I think the, the guys were just, I think they were equally embarrassed for me. <laughs> it was just more like, oh, that guy. And they, they said hello. And that was it, really. But yeah, I think you're right. If I'd have been in Southeast Asia, I'd have probably had somebody come up and definitely been hands-on helping me pick the bike up. But uh, yeah, I think it's more like it just depends on the culture and the people. Yeah. It's quite interesting. Tell us about the uh, the contrast. I mean, flying from Tokyo, a city of you know, 35 million, that's like the population of Canada, to, uh, to Alaska. Wow. Yeah, what was it like? Tokyo took me three days, no, about two days to cycle all the way through the city. It's the largest metropolitan area in the world. Like you said, the population of Canada, that's mental. It's crazy. But yeah, you're just driving. It's not horrible to drive into Tokyo. It's just urban. It's just, so it's not like you'd imagine. It's just sprawls forever. It's never ending all the way pretty much to Mount Fuji. And to go from that and then land in Anchorage at midnight and it was fully daylight and I got picked up by somebody, an American guy called Jim, and he came with his big pickup. And at midnight, as he picked me up, he was like, "Do you want to go for a beer?" 
I'm like, oh, welcome to America. This is amazing. <laughs> we went for a beer and a pizza as we landed, and I was just buzzing, absolutely buzzing to be, I think, back in an English-speaking country for the first time in over a year. Yeah. And and then to just have this American experience, Alaska, it's very different to continental USA for sure, but to have a beer and a pizza at midnight at landing on a Saturday in Alaska was just like, this is this is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I, that it was good. It was a really good change, I felt, for me at that time. And I, I was ready, ready, I think, to go back to somewhere where I could speak English and I was ready for some wilderness. That's what I was yeah. really looking forward to. Tell me about the changes. You did some you did some mods to your bike. You mentioned already the salsa anything cages. Uh what else did you do? To- I, I changed my handlebars. That was a big change. I went from drop bars to tr- I had a surly dish trucker and I changed my handlebars to surly terminal bars. Uh, I think that's what they're called. When I got them at the time, I didn't realize those those handlebars had only just been released. Oh, okay. I think they were about I think they'd only been released about 3 or 4 weeks before I got them. And the Alaska particularly Anchorage has a couple of really good bike shops for people that are bike touring and there's quite a there's a lot of uh, quite popular quite famous bike tourer like uh, I think uh, Lael Wilcox is from Alaska whenever I was there everybody kept telling me about Lael Wilcox she's the girl that's um absolutely smashes all the records on the great divide and she's like breaking records for both men and women everywhere and uh so i met people that knew her and they were really good at setting up a bike and i just i just wanted to have i wanted wide handlebars so i could uh I think for the control off-road i was i was starting to to get to a point where i was i think wanted to get away from the traffic i wanted to get away from pure road cycling and alaska definitely provided that and i I could have definitely done it with drop bars Mm -hmm. it was just i think it was quite a nice change and it allowed me to carry a little bit more stuff at the front of my bike i ended up putting uh, a dry bag underneath my handlebars so it helped for for load storage as well and i found it quite comfortable so for me it was quite good and under your handlebars did you have a um did you have one of those harnesses type things or you just kind of jimmy rigged your own thing I got a Cedar Summit dry bag, which I think it's like 30 liters. And that was it. That's all. And a couple of volley straps. Um, And I just rigged it together. All that's really quite cheap when you compare it to how much these these custom-built handlebar uh, the, the the harnesses and the handlebar rolls, they're quite expensive. They're like over $100. A US, whereas I think the drive bag cost me thirty dollars. The volley straps were like five dollars each. So for the same job, apart the only difference is it only opens on one side, whereas a lot of the handlebar rolls have both sides where you can open it. Yeah, and I think when you're on a long tour and making adjustments to your bike and modifications, you got to be thinking like, all right, what do I really need? You know, because it can add up. The money just flies when you're buying bike components. So. Yeah, I was really lucky that the guy I was staying with, he worked at REI, so I got a big old discount on any of the stuff I needed oh, at that time. Great. And I, I, I felt it as it'd been over a year, and it was a little bit of a, um, just trying to get my kit back. I, I suppose I could have definitely continued with what I had; it wasn't a necessity. Uh, that was definitely a, a want rather than a need. Uh, and I think you're right when you're on a long trip working out your budget and and just being conscious of not just spending money on bikes all the time because you could you could easily blow through your budget yeah. within a few months i want to ask then, oh go ahead yeah i was gonna say that means you're going home earlier if you do that yeah 
Uh, I wanted to ask you, actually, it just came into my head, is um, you, you did change your tent and you bought a Mont Bell tent, which um, to a lot of people might not be a brand they know. I think there are some sales centers in the U.S. that are Mont Bell as well, actually. But um, yeah, how how would you rate your tent? And um, overall, what were your impressions of it? Because I think Mont Bell is a really hidden gem in Japan that uh, not everybody yeah. knows about. I, I think um, I had a MSR three-person tent. I think it's an Elixir 3. Really good tent, highly rated, and if you're cycling with two people, highly, I would highly recommend that tent. And for me, now I was single solo Adam on the bike. I wanted to reduce the tent. The tent was a big old thing I was carrying about, mm-hmm. and I didn't need a tent that big. And I wanted something that would be able to be free freestanding. That's a must. And I wanted something that would be okay in the bad weather. I could I, I could get through Alaska and Canada. So yeah, the Mont Bell tent is it's really really good little tent. Not cheap for sure. I think I paid about four hundred dollars for the the tent, uh, but it, it stood it stood pretty well. I if I was going somewhere really hot, I wouldn't recommend the specific tent I got. I can't remember what it's called. It's just their one person tent. It's not very well ventilated, so it's great mm. for when it's cold, but when it's hot, and particularly as I later on started to get quite a lot of good weather. It wasn't the greatest tent for that. So there's, I suppose you're always, you, you want, what, there's, there's, what's the word? You've got to find the compromise with the equipment you've got. I have the same problem. I have a really great little tarp tent, but the one I bought only opens on one side. So you don't get that draft. You can't get that ventilation through it. Yeah. Well, I went, I went out, I slept in my tent this weekend. I went to Wales. In the down in the UK into the mountains, and I was so happy I have that Mont Bell tent because it was raining hard, the wind was in, and I was like, "Yes, this tent's in its element right now." And I'm in my my tent in my home. <laughs> it felt like I was gone. I'd gone back home, and I'm in there like, <laughs> "Oh, welcome back, Adam. This is good." <laughs> you're finally out of that uh, your hostile apartment, and you're at home. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's it. Tell us about your ride in Alaska and how it played out, because I know you. You originally had this vision of going up to Dead Horse and then that kind of got changed and you were going to go to Tukteyatuk and then, you know, just how about you just talk it through, talk us through it. Yeah. So when I when I started, I I was set in my head. I wanted to go to the Arctic Sea. That was the aim. And I was like, I want to stop, start from the top of North America and the most northerly point you can get to by road is in Alaska. It's up at Dead Horse, Prudhoe Bay. And... But I'd also read that the, the road that goes right up to the top of Canada is quieter uh, because there's no oil traffic. The, right. the traffic that goes all the way up to Prudhoe Bay is big old trucks. And it's not like it's not crazy. You'll get like maybe one an hour at the most. And then sometimes you'll go maybe six hours, seven hours and not see any vehicles. So it's not all the time in Alaska. But at the time I was like, I heard about the, everybody in Alaska tells you how bad the road is, how, how bad the, tr- the, the trucks are and the mosquitoes. And a lot of, there's a lot of similarities between the roads that go up to, to the top of Canada, to Tuktoyatuk. And I think they've, um, they've built from, is it Inuvik? Inuvik. Inuvik, yeah, they built the road from there to Tuktoyatuk now. So over the summer, you can drive that. Whereas I think two or three years ago, that road didn't exist. I think so, it, was, it was only a nice road at that time. You could only drive yeah, it during the winter. So, yeah. so to do that in Canada would be you're one of the a few people that have ever cycled that road because it's only been open a few years and there's probably only a, a handful of people that do that mm-hmm. every year. So that was part of the motivation to get to the top of Canada at that time. So that's why I think I was set on Canada. And what happened was I was at 
Denali National Park. I was staying in a hostel, and uh, in the morning I was making breakfast, and one of the guys just dropped into conversation that he's going up to the Arctic Circle that day, and he's going to be driving up to up to the up to the Arctic Circle in Alaska. And I just saw the opportunity, and was just like, "Do you have space for me to get a lift with you, please? Like, can I throw my bike on the back of your your Jeep?" And he was like, "Sure, why not? You've got 20 minutes to get ready." So at that point, I'm like. God, what am I going to do? Don't have anything ready. I'm all my stuff's more or less charged, luckily. So I had electricity for my camera batteries. I didn't have any food uh, to do the ten to twelve days it would take to cycle that. So I said, "Can we drop stop off at a Walmart before we go?" And that was it. I had forty. I had a half an hour to grab, buy all my food, and I didn't have phone signal my, because I was dependent on Wi-Fi. Oh. I didn't have the chance to let any of my family know, to let friends know that I was going all the way to the top. So my, when I came back, when I eventually did complete it, my phone went crazy when I turned it on for the first time and got, got some internet. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't recommend that. I'd, I'd let, let people know if you're going to go off the grid for for 10 plus days of all the people that weren't worried though my mum was the one that didn't get worried at all she was just like yeah i trust you you're good it was more friends than anything else yeah yeah i remember messaging as well thinking where is he what's going on yeah so especially for me when i'm usually posting things fairly frequently on social media to then just go off the grid for 10 days was, so you never did make it up to the, the van in the woods huh so I was out the next day. I was about a day away from about to go to that. But oh. this opportunity, so I was about to go into Denali National Park properly. And when this opportunity came up, I just was like, oh, that's going to have to wait for another day and took that chance to get all the way to the top. And they, so they drew these, these two couple, Christoph and Nicole were the two people that drove me all the way to the Arctic Circle. And then I realized the Arctic Circle and Prudhoe Bay it's still about 600 kilometers away. So I was like, oh God, how am I going to get from Arctic Circle to, to the top? And really kindly, those two were like, oh, stuff it. We're going to go all the way to the top. We'll take you. Oh, that's fantastic. It, yeah. So that wasn't the plan initially. I was like, I'm going to have to cycle 600K up and then cycle all the way back down to, to the next town, Fairbanks. And I presume that petrol's not necessarily that cheap up there um no so fuel just... yeah there's, there's there's two places to fill up there's a there's a little place called cold cold foot cold foot camp it's an old um gold mining town let's say a town it's a town of i think population 12 and it's literally a fuel fuel station and that's it and it's where the trucks can fill up and then the next one is at Prudhoe Bay. I can't remember the price of the fuel there, but it's in one of my videos. I had a little quick video off the fuel okay. price, and it, it's super expensive. Yeah. It's like the most expensive fuel in America. Well, good of those, good of that couple there to just let you throw your bike on top of the car or wherever you did it, because yeah, maybe a lot of people would be like, "I don't want to scratch the hell out of my car." And like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they had they had a rack, they had a bike. Oh, rack, they had a, which is oh, they had actual yeah. rack. Nice. Yeah. Uh, what were some of the highlights of cycling in Alaska? The wildlife, 100% the wildlife. You're just so remote, particularly that road all the way from the top of Alaska down. I woke up with muskox, these big old kind of like bison-looking things, these big woolly bison. They're yeah, called muskox. You only find them above the Arctic Circle. Mm -hmm. I think you find them in Europe as well, above the Arctic Circle. And so surrounded my, my tent surrounded by these. There's the threat of bears, which luckily I didn't encounter any on this part of the journey. But there's always that worry that there's going to be bears there. And mm -hmm. there's no trees to hang your food. 
So the the best I could do was just to keep my food away from my tent when I slept and just hope for the best. And every single night, my food was still there, which was quite good to see. Um, there was there was foxes. I woke up and I was cooking my dinner, and there was a fox came and sat next to me, which I think that made me happy for about a week. Just that <laughs> that, enc- that encounter with this fox just lo- looking at me and scratching his head, and yeah, and and, and the the also the occasional moments with people and I thought it'd be super remote and it was, but there was so many little encounters which would maybe last for 30 seconds to a minute when somebody equally crazy as me is driven up there. I think driving up there is crazier than cycling it because if your car breaks down, you're stuffed. Whereas if my bike breaks down, I could normally hitchhike. Yeah. So, so I always felt that people driving it were like, yeah, fair play to you. You're, you're a kindred spirit. Good on you. And a lot of motorcyclists as well. There's a, I met, three of the motorcyclists that motorbiked all the way from Argentina and they were this was their last day they were about to get to the top and to be with them on their last day and with me just starting my America's journey it was this contrast of emotions of them like the relief for them and also the sadness of finishing a journey mm-hmm. and for me the pure excitement of starting a journey yeah I, I made a really good friend on that on that road a French guy who later met me in Fairbanks and I met up with him a few oh, times nice. so yeah he, he got he got me a room on July the 4th on, on the Independence Day US Independence Day and me and a load of other travellers all motorbike travellers all, all hung out that day when I finished the the road from the top of Alaska down to Fairbanks was he the guy that was pushing his bike at some point because he had some knee issues going on no, that was a different guy. What was his name? Spencer. Spencer was his name. I don't know what happened to Spencer. I'd love to find out. I I, I didn't, because we had no internet or anything. I didn't get his number or any social media. So I don't know. He might still be Spencer, on the road. Spencer, if you're listening. Yeah, if, you, if you're looking, he should be. He could be in Mexico right now, cycling yeah. south. But I'm not too sure. I think yeah. he was just very fresh on his tour and his body just hadn't adapted to the life of pedaling every day at that point. Yeah. To be fair to that guy, this this lad was about, I think, 26, 27. He'd uh, left his job and his first ever bike trip, he decided to fly to Prudhoe Bay. And he'd never been on a bike trip before and he was kitted out with, with all the best like bikepacking gear and he they looked the, looked the part but uh, the, the guy had some some balls definitely to take him to take himself all the way to the top <laughs> and i i'd been on the road for a year and it was an absolute challenge for me yeah uh, whereas for for him his body i think he didn't really anticipate how how tough it would be on his knees i think maybe his bike didn't fit yeah. him and yeah he pushed and fair play to him he pushed his bike for about three days just was stubborn and then he eventually did hitchhike and I, I saw him at the little transit camp at Coldfoot and he was he was there eating some breakfast and I was like ah Spencer how's it going oh, amazing. Yeah, uh, cool. what are some of the challenges you had up there in Alaska I know you had some mechanical issues that uh... oh the, my bike by this point I I am a tight Yorkshireman so in the north of England in Yorkshire people from Yorkshire are notoriously known for being stingy with money mm. and I lived up to that reputation that reputation and didn't get my wheel fixed I had um, this so I broke my this the wheel that comes with the Surly Destrucker in China and I'd replaced it for five dollars with a Chinese wheel 
And I was like, I quite liked the fact I had a $5 Chinese wheel for like over 10,000 kilometers. And it was me, it, it was like a little bit of pride that this wheel was still lasting. Realistically, that was a $55 wheel that uh, just hadn't been exported yet from China. <laughs> it probably is the same <laughs> wheel. So the, the guy built it and everything for $5. I did, it did a really good job. But as soon as I hit the the non-tarmac roads of that of that really rough road in the top of Alaska. I had instantly spokes popping, multiple flat tires. My, my tires were bare by this point. And this sounds like really terrible preparation, which it absolutely was. And I suppose me just going, yeah, I'll be okay, was my attitude when I took that hitchhike all the way to the top. What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'll be fine. I'll be okay. And I was fine. I was okay. Definitely added to the adventure, me being a little bit more blasé with my kit. I was on, I think I must have had it. I'm not exaggerating this either. Over 20, 30 punches Shit. in that 10 days. It was at least two a day. So that makes definitely definite sense. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating. There'd be a point where I think I've fixed it because I have no more spare tubes. So I'm using patches and it'll last for maybe three hours until it just eventually goes down. So every three hours I'm getting off the bike, pumping it back up, getting back on the bike. And it just became routine every time I'd stop and rest, pump it back up. So that, that tire was just constantly going up and down. And at one point when another spoke had broken, I had, one of my tires hadn't gone down for three days. And I was like, oh, I don't want to let this tire down and then change these spokes or try and put another spoke in. So there was a lot of me being by myself in the middle of nowhere, just trying to cobble my bike together. But uh, it worked. I, I did it. It definitely did add to the challenge and it added to the uh, that feeling of accomplishment yeah. as well, though. If, it, if, it's, if it's easy, it's not probably an adventure, really. Yeah, true. Yeah. Did the landscape get, go like, not to say boring, but just because, like, the never-ending sameness for 10, 12 days as you're cycling south from the, the top of the world? Did it get a little bit mundane after a while or...? So it changes vastly. This is something I learned, really. I didn't know this, but when you're right above the, the right at the top of the Arctic Circle, there's no trees. It's all tundra. So the ground you can see just as far as the horizon, and it's just it's really weird because normally there's a tree or there's some sort of bushes or at least something like that. Mm -hmm. So if there are any bears or wildlife, I'd see the massive amount of caribou running past me, and be, you can spot them so easily because there's no trees. Whereas you get to a point where there's the most northern tree in North America, and this is the start of the tree line, and that's the point where the trees get enough sunlight and the conditions are okay enough for them to start growing. And, and then when you first hit that first tree, it's just after the Brooks Mountain Range. So this is the the big old mountain range that's up in northern Alaska, okay. and they've they've worked a route a road that goes over. The, the it's probably like the easiest lowest point off that whole mountain range as they could find it but it's i think it's still pretty high don't know the exact uh, the height right now but it's a it's a big old two i think it's two or three days of climbing on the bicycle on really rough roads and in the snow that road will be famous from like ice road truckers that, that tv show okay this is this is where all the crashes would happen and if you crash there that's like could be catastrophic death time it's crazy uh, so yeah these roads going up them was was ridiculous and then coming down them down these really good long downhills and then suddenly there's trees and i suppose the mountains are always changing and the, these rivers are always changing and that's what keeps you going it's okay. it, does, it wasn't repetitive by that point canada is a different matter and we'll probably come on to that yeah we will in a few minutes uh, yeah alaska wasn't boring though no. 
Before continuing on with the podcast, I just want to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventures sponsors. Bike Tour Adventures is proudly sponsored by Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat posts paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Use the checkout code BTA15 on their website to save 15%. Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as a main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used their race bag since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Use the checkout code BTAPOD10 to save 10% at checkout. Lastly, named after the animal that roams the Tibetan plateau, Chiru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Magnin in 2009. After noticing the lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. Thanks, and back to the podcast. Um, what kind of things should people take into consideration when camping when there's bears around? Just separating your food and stuff, right? Yeah, don't cook where you sleep. If you're going to eat, cook. So I would cook, get back on my bike, and then at least cycle for 15 to 20 minutes. So oh, really? Get okay. a, yeah, that wouldn't be nowhere near it. Just that was I, I don't know if that's best practice, but I just felt if a bear's going to ever be attracted, it's going to be from the smell of my pasta and pesto yeah. uh, or whatever I'm cooking. So don't have really smelly foods. Um, so like so sausages or I don't know um, beef jerky if it's not in a vacuum bag and mm. things like that, that that's going to attract so I pretty much lived on on pasta and pesto really quite bland boring food mm. a lot of couscous a lot of rice but food that's high in energy and it packs down quite low and that's how I avoided the burrs and I never and I had burr spray but equally, if you're using bear spray, you're that's the last last resort. You know, yeah, it's, exactly. it's got bad for that point. But I, I didn't need I didn't need to, so I was quite lucky. Is there anything that you didn't see that you really kind of wish you would have? I would love to have seen. It's the wrong time of year. I've never seen the Northern Lights. Ah, yeah. So that's something that every time I come, uh, somebody asks me when they know I've been to Alaska. Like, oh, did you see the Northern Lights? I was like, I just saw twenty four hour daylight. That was it's its own that's Northern right, yeah. Lights in a way. But, uh, yeah, that's why. Um, I didn't see, as far as animals go, well, polar bears, it's the wrong time of year to see a polar bear, and equally you don't really want to see one. Um, big grizzly. Never saw a big old grizzly. Um, so, yeah, but equally I'm quite glad as well. It's like, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Crossing into Canada, is there much of a change or is it still kind of similar when you're when you're way up there? It's, it's really the same. As soon as you, whatever border you cross, it's just, the only difference is the road signs go to kilometers, which I quite like. And uh, yeah, it's, it's not really any different. The Canadian border I crossed at the, on the Alcam, the Alaska-Canada highway. Mm-hmm. And that road's really weird, the way the border's set up. The U.S. border is, I don't know, it's mid, but the U.S. border office and the Canadian border office are about 20, 30 kilometers apart. Normally, you cross a border and you instantly enter the next one. That's right. But I had about 20 kilometers of no man's land where I could have probably camped in technically in Canada, having not passed in and as in got my passport, my passport stamped and got a, an extra free day in Canada then. But I, was, I, I, want, I wanted to get in and just get stamped. And it was quite nice to see a big old portrait, a big picture of the Queen as soon as I got to the Canadian. Border. Oh, I quite yeah. like that. 
Yeah, because obviously they're still the sovereign. So that was, as a Brit, it was like, ah, welcome back to the Commonwealth. Yeah. Did so you cross was, at the Alcan border, Beaver Creek, that kind of place? Is that That's exactly okay. it. Yeah, Beaver Creek, right. the most most western town in Canada. That's right. Which is yeah, it's quite a cool little town. Camped. Uh, also met. I think he was was he Italian? Yeah, an Italian guy paid for me to stay there that night in a in a campground. So that was really cool. Oh, that's nice. And yeah, I ended up getting a, as a Brit, I got six month stamp into my passport. I had to ask for that at the border. Didn't have to put any paperwork in in advance. And they, I got interviewed. They asked me what I wanted to do. And as long as you can justify what you're going to be doing and they think you're not going to try and overstay your visa. Yeah. And they, they just want to know you're not going to be working or trying to work. Oh, they quite cleverly asked me, so when you run out of money, you're going to work, yes? And I was like, of course not. <laughs> I would never work. And they're like, uh, the way they asked me that question, they definitely would try and trip me up there. Yeah, yeah. I, I was. I remember watching, we had one of those shows on TV where they, you know, the, the border patrol people, whatever. Oh, yeah. And there was a lady coming through, a Filipina lady coming through the, the border, going to visit her sister in Winnipeg. And they're like, so why exactly do you have your resumes and college degrees and all this stuff with you? And she's like... Oh, I like to carry my paperwork with me wherever I go. Yeah, They're like, of course. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then finally she's saying, yeah, yeah. well, I'm, I'm hoping that maybe I can find a job and like have find a company to sponsor me so then I can fly out of the country and come back and work. And they're like, yeah, that's not going to fly. And yeah, I, I didn't work when I was there, but equally I got offered so much work, cash yeah. in hand style work. If I was short of funds at that point, it would have been very easy. You never, never bothered to take anybody up on the offer? I was very aware of the weather. I didn't want to yeah. get caught mm-hmm. in Yukon in in the snow. And I was just, I was really enjoying being on the bike, if I'm being honest. And I had enough money. My YouTube channel was starting to make some money by this point, and I felt I didn't need to stop and work. I was like, I'm I'm good. But it, the the type of work I got offered was like working on people's houses to. Uh, it's like it's like work for somebody that wanted to renovate re- renovate their house for to be an Airbnb and stuff like mm-hmm. that. It was it would just be like I got I think it was twice in Canada I asked to do work like that. Now I remember you talking and mentioning that uh, surprisingly the Yukon actually has like seven of the ten highest peaks in North America or something, and and yeah. it's, it, you kind of don't expect it when you're going into the Yukon how much mountain cycling oh it's doing. amazing yeah as soon as you get the i'm going to pronounce this wrong i think you might help me okay Kloani, Kloani, the Kloani national park is okay. spelled oh, yeah k yeah k l yeah u-a-n-e yeah. i don't know yeah yeah i'm not so sure it's got a huge lake and i cycled along that lake for quite a while and that whole yeah that destruction bay yeah that's it so that whole national park uh Yes, exactly that. Seven of the top 10 peaks in the whole of North America. That's insane. So obviously Denali um, is the biggest. And then I think Mount, uh, is it McKinley in the south? I believe that's like Denali. Mount Logan. Um, there's, there's one in a, in California that's pretty big. One in, ah, okay. in, in, in Yosemite is massive. I can't, uh, can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. But um, yeah, the, it's huge. The, it's, but what's really cool about it is you go from – really flat, flat, flat ground. And it's out of nowhere, this mountain range is just, it's just towering above you. And it wasn't a crazy climb on the bike, really, compared to, say, the Brooks Mountain Range in Alaska. Mm-hmm. But it was just stunning. It's, it's some of the most beautiful mountains I've ever seen, just because of that contrast in flatness, trees, and then suddenly eruption of mountains. Yeah. And um, you were aiming for Vancouver, and then you changed your plans. You ended up going... Uh 
to a hippie festival or something. Um, <laughs> yeah. Tell us. A hippie festival. No, I don't think it was a hippie yeah. festival at all, actually. It was an Aboriginal festival, wasn't it? So, yeah, I was making my way down through, at this point I'd gone through Yukon, through Whitehorse, I was making my way down the uh, the Cassia Highway on uh, in, in British Columbia, which is a really cool road to cycle. If anyone's cycling south, I'd recommend that route. And then I met somebody that told me about this place called Haida Gwaii. Um, it's like a, it's called the Queen Charlotte Islands, the colonial term, but they refer to the people they refer to it as Haida Gwaii. That's the group of islands, and the Haida people are the the First Nation people from these islands. They have their own Haida language. Okay, they're so kind of like a lot of Canada. Canada's probably the country I've seen in North America where they've they've tried to protect a lot of their First Nation nation cultures. And I know there's problems Finally. and issues with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. There's definitely issues, but Haida Gwaii, it seems, because it's so separate, if you think, imagine Vancouver Island and mm-hmm. go 700 kilometers up the coast, that's where Haida Gwaii is. And you can even see Alaska from Haida Gwaii, so it's right next to Alaska. Oh, yeah, I can see on the map that it's literally, the, the, I mean, the Alaskan border is just right there beside Prince Rupert, right? Not yeah, so away. I went, I got the ferry from Prince Rupert, which if you take a vehicle, like a car, it's quite expensive. But on, as a foot passenger with a bicycle, it's quite cheap. So I, I took the ferry across to uh, to Haida Gwaii, down to Queen Charlotte, and then from there went to this music festival called the Edge of the World Festival. It's a one-stage, whole weekend festival, and I was the only cool. British person there, the only foreigner, I think. Everybody was Canadian, and there's so much First Nations culture there. So it felt like a real privilege to be invited there and to see this place, which if I speak to most Canadians, they've never heard of it. They don't know where it is mm-hmm. because it is so off the beats and track. And once you're there, there's all these old, old growth forests which have never been cut down. They're like thousands of years old, and the the forests there, again, unlike anything I've ever seen, it's just, Brilliant. it's just beautiful. I was gonna say it's, it was one of the highlights I think of my my whole time in North America was mm-hmm. Haida No kidding, huh? There's a there's some areas up there I would love to see because as a teacher we we teach some some of the Aboriginal culture stuff like the Gitchin art and the, the total bulls yeah. and all that, like. And it would be just amazing to actually get to cycle through that area. It's really there's a museum, there's a there's a Haida Nation museum there, just near on the outskirts of Queen Charlotte. It's near Skidigat is the name of the town, and they've got all these massive totem poles all over the place. You'll be in the you'll be in this forest in the middle of nowhere, and you'll suddenly see a carved like totem pole just. For, like just hidden away and you're like this this wow. is amazing yeah and the mountains there are pretty tough you can you could go there and easily a kayak and visit all the islands on the south which are equally beautiful and remote and amazing mm. uh, and it's there's the islands in the south uh, yeah i never got to do that but that's, i'd love to return and do it again one day Oh, amazing. Were you ever kind of surprised at the amount of lakes in Canada? I mean, you must have been passing just <laughs> It's never-ending. It's amazing. It's It means you've got fresh water. You've got somewhere to swim. Canada. Oh, I do love Canada. And I know I'm speaking to a Canadian right now. Well, but... That's why your prince just moved to Canada, I guess. <laughs> no, mate, he's not He's not wrong. Let's get away from the UK <laughs> and get, get himself to Vancouver Island. Uh, Canada's just, yeah, it's got... It's got the most natural beauty I've ever seen in a country. It can be really remote, and then equally, somewhere like Vancouver. It's the only big city I've been to. Which is what we're, I was just getting onto. So um, yeah. let's talk about Vancouver, and maybe you could talk about um, flying drones off of ferries. 
<laughs> oh, I knew this would come up. Yeah, uh, don't do it. That's my advice for anybody listening. Just uh, do never fly a drone on a, whilst you're on a ferry. I, I saw a load of whales when I was going on the inside passage from Heide, from Prince Rupert up near Haida Gwaii to Vancouver Island. Okay. And just thought, oh, this would be cool. I had a Mavic, Mavic Pro 2, really good drone, quite expensive. Fast and powerful. Yeah, all these things. I got it. Yeah, took it for granted. I hovered it whilst I was on the ferry, and it was fine. It was able to hover, but as soon as it got into away from the wind protection that the ferry was providing, the ferry was just too quick. I could not keep up with the drone, and I just for twenty minutes, the length of the battery, just watched the drone get further and further <laughs> away. As I've got it on sport mode, flying it as low as possible to avoid the wind and. I thought I'd land it on a, a little boat that was nearby, but I, it was so far away I couldn't see. I could just see the yeah. view of the camera, and I crashed it into the boat, and that was it. Never saw anything else. and never heard anything again, so that was a drone down. That was my second drone I lost. So um, if you're I listening lost. to this and it was hit by a drone um, and you want to bill Adam, um, <laughs> contact him at Adam <laughs> I lost. I spoke to you. Uh, back in April, I think it was April, May, oh, yeah. March last year, March, yeah. and I lost a drone about two weeks after that interview in Cambodia as well. So I've got a terrible track record. Not long after, I cycled with you down to um, to 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 Kampot, and then not yeah. long after that, yeah. So it was, it was about four days after that, I think three or four days. Uh, yeah, I was by myself for the first time, and I flew that drone into the jungle, and it decided to fly itself home, but home it decided was the top of a jungle canopy which uh yeah anyway don't that drones are an expensive not must have i was when i got to vancouver i was in two minds about getting another drone so i was like i can't keep just losing drones so i decided i went to craigslist and i got a drone for i think it was about 300 dollars a little dji spark And it's I've still got that drone. It's done a great job. So buy a, buy a cheap drone is my a secondhand cheap drone if you ever need one. If you're a filmmaker. All right. So let's talk um, Vancouver. Tell me about Vancouver. And I know you spent a fair bit of time there. And apparently you loved it. So go on. Yeah, Vancouver was my my last little stop in Canada. At that point, I was in two minds about whether to then attempt to cycle across Canada, all the way to the, to Newfoundland. Or if I was going to go down the Pacific coast and I met up with another one of your previous guests, uh, Marielle, the, uh, the biking Viking, met yeah. up with her and we had a bit of time together and met up with some other people, made loads of friends in Vancouver. Vancouver was amazing for that. The social side, especially as far as being outdoors goes, is amazing. The mountains are there. There's a beach there. I was there in August, September, so it was a perfect time to be in that city. And on my first day in Vancouver, I got invited to go and cycle with a big cyclocross team oh, that's cool. into into the mountains, which I can't think of any other city that, that could happen. Where you've got mountains 20 minutes away and it's it's world-class skiing or, or mountain yeah. biking. And as well, but, uh, if you're into the water sports, you know, windsurfing, parasailing, all, any of these things. Like, uh, everything, man. But, it, but the negative is it's expensive as hell to live mm-hmm. there. So, but I can see why, because it is wonderful. But I, I spent nearly a month in Vancouver, made my mind, had my 31st birthday, and after a load of, lots of reasons why, I decided to do the more social route of cycling down the, down the Pacific coast, down through the USA yeah. to California. And 
I'm really happy I made that decision. I often have these little moments, these points where I have to decide, do I go left or do I go right? And I try not to think about it too much in advance and just see how I feel at the time. And it, it, it worked out. And I think you found a bit of a love in Vancouver. You, you, I saw uh, pictures or video of you on a tandem bike with another British lad and... Um... It looked wonderful. Yeah, that was that guy <laughs> I was I was friends with. Yeah, me, me and him played rugby together from like 13 years old, and he la- lives That's out wild. in Canada. So, I think I saw three people from the that I've known from back home in the UK in Vancouver. So that was a real treat. I've not seen anybody I know properly for quite a long time. So was, rather than being like, "Hi, I'm Adam. Nice to meet you," I, it was being able to just like start off as they already know who you are they know everything about yeah. you almost and that was i'd missed that i really had missed that amazing yeah we've considered it i mean we've we've looked at vancouver and i said like, oh we both would love to live there i think but as soon as you start looking at housing prices like in ontario in ottawa here a three-bedroom house goes for around let's say half a million dollars in right. vancouver it's like two and a half million yeah and even rent there like if you're gonna rent if you're gonna rent a two-bed apartment uh, similar to the place, like level you lived at in Cambodia, yeah. you're going to pay like three thousand plus dollars a month. Sick, it's, it's ridiculous, insane. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know. So we're keeping it as an options, but we're just we just have to look at the area and see where work opportunities would be. I mean, I'm, I'm a teacher and I'm a temp French teacher, so really, there's anywhere I could work. But yeah. more about Sema, you know, like if we were living close to Vancouver, then she'd probably be working in Vancouver and somehow has to commute there. So. Yeah, it's it, well. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, let's uh, let's jump forward. Let's. Um, I know you struggled a little bit in your decision whether or not to take the Great Divide or the Pacific Coast Road. Why did you decide on the Pacific Coast? And do you have any regrets about it? No, there's there's, there's never regrets because the road the road I cycled. Either way, you're gonna miss something. So yeah, I I decided that it was September, mid September by this point, and I think I'd missed the boat with the weather window really for for a decent Great Divide uh, mountain bike route, okay. uh, which which obviously uh, you've got quite a few mountain passes and. And at at that time, I'd cycled for quite a long time by myself in very rural areas. And I wanted to do something quite social. I am naturally a sociable person. And being by yourself for months, going through Korea, Japan, and then Alaska and Canada, I was just ready to cycle with other people. And I felt that the biggest chance of that happening was going down the Pacific coast. So I, and I was exactly correct. Like it couldn't have been more of what I wanted. Within a day, I met a guy called David who played played the fiddle. He was from like the eastern side of the <laughs> USA. Played it in the Appalachian style, and he was cycling the Pacific Coast. I uh, stayed in so many warm showers places that I made so many really good friends. I uh, cycled with two Australian girls that I'd never bike toured before, and they cyc- were cycling down from Canada to Mexico. And loads of other people, loads of people along the way. And just being able to spend time with, with all these people that have be genuinely become friends was exactly what I wanted. And yeah. the people of the United States as well, the Americans, they were really good. Yeah, I think after cycling Alaska and Yukon and stuff, it was just, you don't really see that many cyclists up there, right? So having... I saw maybe two or three mm-hmm. in those like months. And then I think I'd see like two or three a day. In, on the on the Pacific Coast, September's a really popular time to start the Pacific Coast Highway because it's not crazy touristy by that point. The summer's finished, and the weather's still good. 
So you've got that combination mm -hmm. of two good things. And California in the summer can be crazy hot, whereas September, October, it's pretty nice. It's good, good weather. Albeit Washington State, the wettest state I've, the wettest place I've ever been. It just rains every day. It's ridiculous. <laughs> that was the only, True. the only bad weather I got. Yeah. Well, Washington State's kind of like Vancouver as well. Lots of rain. Yeah. Um, lots of rain. I think people in the U.S. are, it's they're kind of underrated, right? Like they have a bad rap because the U.S. and their politics. And uh, what were the people like in general? Like as you traveled around. So, well, American people change so much depending on the state you're in, the area. So to compare somebody from Washington State and Louisiana is very, very different culturally. Okay. As you're on the Pacific Coast, it's, the coast is very liberal. It's a very um, politically more Democrat-leaning place. And as soon as you kind of get inland or you go anywhere away from the coast, it becomes a little bit more Republican Trump land. And, and people are very keen to tell you their politics straight away. Oh, yeah? I try not to talk politics too much and was kind of like just staying neutral because I can't, I, just, I don't really care enough to, to talk about another country's politics mm -hmm. to them. Whereas they are very quick to tell you either way who they support. And then equally as a Brit, Americans loved asking me about Brexit. <laughs> loved oh, it. Yeah. The first question would be like, what do you think about Brexit? I'm like, I've not lived in the UK for, at that point for about four years and... There's so many more interesting things I could probably talk about than the Met. But I also think that a lot of Americans are quite glad that it, it's like, yeah, look, it's not just our country that's messed up right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> your, your country's struggling too. So, like, What do you think about Brexit? That? Sounds expensive. <laughs> <laughs> but people, on the whole, I would say 99% of people were wonderfully kind, friendly, welcoming, and the most, I think the most friendliest, openly friendly people you'll meet. And for sure, some of the worst drivers I've encountered have also been in the States. So it's not all wonderful in that mm -hmm. sense. And it's a very big car culture, unlike any other country in the world. Like Canada, yeah, for sure, the big cities, cars, but at least somewhere like, say, Vancouver's got bike lanes everywhere and it's very geared up towards that. Whereas in the States, the car is supreme and that country's, the success of the USA is built on the motor vehicle. Yeah. And yeah, that, I suppose... When you're on the road, particularly a busy road, like on the Pacific Coast, often on Highway 1 or the 101, you'd, you'd get, I'd get bullied off the road by big trucks quite frequently, which if you're not a confident person on the road, it could be, that could be really disheartening. Even yeah. for me, it was quite like, I'd have moments where I'm like, I've had enough of this. I'm going to go inland. I'm, I'm, and then the next day it'd be beautiful, what quiet, windy road by the coast. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is okay. But there's definitely sections where I got a little bit fed up with the traffic. Mm -hmm. I've heard people say too, but uh, about the people in America, I've heard, um, I've heard people say that some of the most conservative leaning states the people were some of the absolute best they've met in america maybe that's more just because of the family values of the conservative family, yeah i right? just i just think on the whole and um, especially for me as a foreigner landing in somebody's town with a bike i've got a story and americans are more than happy to go and ask me about my story uh, ask me what what are you doing you're crazy and they're, they're not shy think, yeah yeah, they just think you're crazy, and and, that's, and then they want to talk to you, which is really good. Like that's why the bikes are wonderful way of traveling because it's it's that icebreaker. People just mm -hmm. want to hear your story because you've got a bicycle there. The the big things I did see that like big problems in the states and is the homeless levels, the particularly on the Pacific Coast, the amount of people that are, are struggling, and due to the politics of the country and the, the thousands you'd see in places like San Francisco just on the streets 
was it was quite sad. But equally, I, I would chat to quite a lot of them, and you'd realise that these people are just on hard times quite often. And yeah, it's 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 a bigger problem there. But on, on the whole, I I I loved the American people. I love that country. Really love that country. Yeah, I think North America in general. Um, one of the one of the problems with it is we we've been pushed with this sense of ownership of things, and a lot of people end up living outside their means because they always feel they have to be like uh, one of the Joneses or like to one up their the, the people they know and to like show off you know how they've succeeded yeah. the idea that anybody can make it right the land of the what do they call it, america the land of the land of the free the land of the free and anybody can yeah anybody can become rich and like you want to show that how well you're doing and and i think it's a slippery slope and a lot of people have gotten themselves into like real financial difficulties and, and there's that with the healthcare and the substance it's often mental health issues as well somebody gets sick and they're messed they're done yeah that's it. Yeah, it can be really simple. It can realize how quickly it can happen to you. And less so, I feel like it, we, we have problems in the UK, for sure. There's definitely homeless problems here, and that's getting worse, but it's nowhere near the scale as mm -hmm. I saw in the States. And I think health healthcare is the big one. And that's the, probably the biggest thing that got brought up quite a lot by Americans was just that they were trapped by their jobs often, and they were worried to death about losing their job because they lose their healthcare. And it's something that I've never had to consider. And I'm so lucky in the sense of my, my birth, my passport allows me free healthcare. Yeah. And, and, and they don't. It's, it's, but there's a lot of positives as well for the States. It's not mm -hmm. all negatives. All right. Let's, uh, let's jump forward a little bit. You made some changes at, uh, after San Francisco to your route and stuff. Um, why don't you yeah. tell us about it? And even I was starting to get confused as to where you went after San Francisco. So, so, so do I, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Right. In in short, in San Francisco, I met a girl that I quite liked, and by this point, I'd been single for like about nine months or so. Okay. And uh, this girl, um, she lived over in Mississippi. She's a doctor, and I was like, oh, cool. Let's. Uh, this could be good. Let's see what happens here. And I continued cycling all the way through. From San Francisco up to like Lake Tahoe in the California, in the mm -hmm. Sierra Nevada mountains, into Nevada, back into California through Death Valley National Park, and then from Death Valley to Vegas. And by this point, we'd been speaking for over a month with this girl, and I was like, I want to come and see you, but I didn't have much time left on my 90-day stay in the USA. Okay. So I was like, if I cycle to you, I don't think I'll get there in time or I'll get one day with you and then I'll be done. So I looked at flights and was like, oh, it's going to cost me $200 to get across there. And I don't know. I decided to do it. <laughs> I decided okay. to fly to Mississippi. So it was a bit, I don't know. Looking back, it's quite a, I don't think, I didn't work out with this girl. So it, I, I made a decision based on a punt and th hoping that something could work. But one of the really good things about doing this, it meant I got a layover from Vegas to in, in Denver in Colorado. And there's an other YouTube guy who I've been following for years called Ryan Van Duza. Yeah. And Ryan makes bike touring, bike travel videos, as well as running videos, and lives an outdoors adventure life and lives in the town of Boulder. And I oh, had been okay. in touch with him previously before. We got in touch, and he's like, if you've got time, come down. We'll go for a bike ride. We'll go for a hike, and we can have a catch up. How long was your so layover? It, it was. I landed at like five a.m. 
and I didn't fly the next day till like 7 p.m. that night. So I had a full day. Oh wow, nice! In 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 Denver, which Boulder's a 30 40 minute bus ride. So I got on the bus. My bike, I left it in. Uh, no, I, I left my bike in. I didn't have to check my bike out. My bike was already getting taken there, so I didn't have any luggage. Oh, sweet. I just took myself and my hand luggage over to Boulder, met Ryan, met this guy I've been following, big YouTube guy. And that was really cool to see a guy that lives in the same town he was born in and has built a community of his own, but equally goes away and does one month, two month, three month mm -hmm. long bike tours or hikes or whatever he does. And then this time with him years. start getting you thinking of how you would change your tour if you were to go back to civilized world and <laughs> it was exactly world, you know that. I mean? Yeah. And I, I think at this point I'd been invited to so many people's communities. I just felt this longing to build my own community. Mm -hmm. Before I did this journey, I was in the British army and that meant I traveled around the world, but my community was so transient. They, they, my, all my friends live everywhere, all over the world, yeah. not, not in a town. So I felt like I didn't have this hometown and I, I, I see somebody doing it. This Ryan, I think is 40 and somebody 10 years older than me that's, double down on making videos and making that his life, but equally living an adventurous lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And that was a really key moment. So this flight to go and see this girl in Mississippi, albeit cool, that was great. But really the best thing about it was spending a day with Ryan Van Duzer, <laughs> which is which is really unexpected. I didn't expect when I decided to fly, that wasn't the reason I flew, yeah, yeah. flew across the country. But Just it's weird like when it. you look back on how these things can happen and how a day with him has cemented in my head and changed really the focus on how I want to travel in the future. Mm -hmm. How long did you stay in Mississippi for? And then I saw you were in New Orleans for a while. So where did you go? What happened? Um, yeah, so I, I landed in Jackson and I spent about five days with this girl and I kind of realized that we're on different pages for both of us. And I said, good luck to you. And she said, good luck to me. And off we went. And we're, okay. it wasn't a fallout. It was just, it was just, it didn't work out. And I then cycled down to New Orleans. And from there, my plan, I didn't really know what I was going to do. I was going to go either to Mexico, continue down through Central America, or Christmas was coming up. And I was in two minds about whether to, to go home and visit family for the first time in 18 months. And over time, I kept going back and forth, back and you forth. Did. And, and, and you, went, you went back and forth on social media too. <laughs> don't do it in public. So sometimes I will say something publicly on social media or YouTube with the hope that by committing and saying it out loud, I will do it. Mm -hmm. And But that doesn't work. I don't care enough about social media to care what people think. So I'll say something, and then a week later, the, the key point for me in, in New Orleans was there was this girl I met. And uh, she uh, she allowed me to go. She, she invited me to her house for Thanksgiving and, the, and and a big American Thanksgiving with all her family, extended family, and sisters and uncles and aunties and little kids. And I was just like, oh, I need to go home for Christmas. That was it. That was the moment. I was okay. like, I, I have to go and see my family, like and my friends, because seeing the happiness of these all being mm -hmm. together. And I knew what it would provide my family and what it would give me. And that was the key moment was Thanksgiving, okay. November, a few months ago. So 
while you were in New Orleans, did you get down to like towards the coast, like down some of these like because it's like the really swampy oh, the, area, the, the bayou, the, the bayou, the yeah. bayou swamps. Yeah, so I cycled all along that. I spent nearly a month in New Orleans. Oh, were you and, there that long? Yeah, nice. Yeah, it's just just short. It's like three and a half weeks, and yeah, I love that city. I, I'm definitely going to go back at some point. I've made some friends for life in that really? city and okay. yeah I, and at this point i decided the bike journey was pretty much over okay and i'd seen when i was in vegas so going back a month before i was in new orleans i saw a job advertised on on linkedin and this job uh was in based in the uk but you travel around the uk providing analysis for british military training and it's not an office job. It only requires you to work 150 days a year. And you're working with soldiers, which I loved when I yeah. was in the Army. That was the best thing about it. So I applied for this job whilst I was in Vegas and did a load of phone interviews, got recommendations from people that knew me within the job. And I agreed to do an interview in the UK like three or four days after I got back into England. Oh, excellent. There's not many jobs I'd go back for. But this job specifically needed somebody with my experience and they, they wanted someone that hasn't been out of the army for more than two years. And I was coming up to 18 months by this point. And ah, okay. I saw like, if I don't take this job, I may never get the opportunity again. And I, uh, the big, so I did get the job in the end. I, I start this job tomorrow mm-hmm. and have my first day at work. And for me, it means I've got money coming in and I've got loads of free time. I've got a 150 days of work which i don't know how much do you work as a teacher you work uh, 189 yeah so teachers notoriously have great time off and i get another 30 days Screw so you, Adam. Fall- <laughs> <laughs> i know mate I, i've fallen on my feet a bit but equally i had to be looking for this job at that time yeah, absolutely i've created the space to be free to take an opportunity and when i got interviewed for the job they asked me about the bike trip uh, and I think that, you know, I'm not going to say he swung it, but it was a really big plus. The fact I said to them, they're like, so what have you done for the last 18 months? And to say I cycled for 20,000 kilometers through Asia, North America, I've then created a YouTube channel and did something different and creative. Mm-hmm. For them, they were, they were really impressed that I didn't just follow the normal path that a lot of people when they leave a job they they if you leave the military a lot of people go and work in london or they get an office job yeah and i think they liked the fact i was a bit different and wasn't keen to just follow the normal path so a lot of people when they're thinking about taking a big bike trip we're worried about their job prospects when coming back but for me i i I absolutely see as a positive i've changed and grown and developed in a way that you no other education could give me True. And I feel like an employer that values that is someone I want to work for. And if somebody doesn't value that, I, I probably don't want to work for them. Did you fly out of New Orleans or you went to you? I, I think I so saw I, you went to I Florida, a, right? I had a connection in Miami. Okay. And I spent one day in Miami and that was it. So pretty much New Orleans, Miami one day and then London. In the lower 48, I mean, you spent a fair bit of time there. Yeah. I guess you could include Alaska in this as well. But where would you say you saw the best scenery? Best scenery, yeah. Well, Alaska's a given, <laughs> for sure. And I really liked, this is a bit left field, but California's great. California's mm-hmm. amazing because it's got uh, like the, the Sierra Nevada mountains. It's got Death Valley. Oh, no, it's, it's absolutely California. <laughs> I was going to say Nevada was pretty cool, but, you know, compared to the, the, 
the diff- I, didn't, I didn't even go to Yosemite National Park as well, but um, I was on the edge of it and I saw the edge of Yosemite. But the, those mountains, those coastal roads all the way down to San Francisco and Death Valley National Park, the, some of the most beautiful desert landscapes and like these geological shapes in the mountains really? that I've never seen anywhere else. They've got sand dunes, which look like something out of Lawrence of Arabia, and then they've got these epic mountains in this valley, which, yeah, I wouldn't want to go there in the summer. It's meant to be like the hottest place in the world, but going in October was okay. I'd highly recommend it, for sure. You never made it to the Grand Canyon, right? Not on this journey. I've been no. there on a, a few years ago, so I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't driven to get there. That's, again, one of the most amazing places I've ever been in Nevada. Um, if you could get to death, it's a Grand Canyon. Yeah, so good. Where was the best food? Louisiana. Yeah. 100%. Oh, man. Oh, they have um, these big sandwiches called po'boys. They're just big old sandwiches with crayfish and shrimp and seafood's huge there because it's right on the mm-hmm. coast. Um, they have uh, these little donuts called bagnets. They're pretty cool. Um, they have this soup, this big hearty soup called uh, gam- gambo. Gambo, yeah. Uh, yeah, all these foods I'd never heard it's of. It's funny that when you said the donut word, I mean, it's totally a French word, but because of the Louisiana um, like Creole type thing, they, they've just repronounced it into an English word, right? <laughs> yeah, oh, this, and that's what I love that about Louisiana is there's this blend of Cajun, uh, German, there's a lot of obviously the French, and, and then the colonial English mixes there, which are all, and it stands out so strong. And all these, the music there, oh man, that, New Orleans alone, just to go to a jazz bar and sit in there and just chill out is, yeah. and you can equally go there and go crazy party if you want, but after maybe one or two days of that, you just want to chill out and it's a it's good it's a proper thriving did you city. did you get a lot of beads for taking your shirt off <laughs> i think mardi gras the, at the end of this end of february but uh what what, it, what you do notice because i was there like not in mardi gras but there's always a party and there's beads everywhere i yeah. go running running around the city and there's just beads on the ground i think year round they don't even if they clean them all up, there's just beads left over. Yes. So Mardi Gras there will be ridiculous. Yeah, it's got to be terrible for the waterways. Imagine what gets in the ocean. But hey, that's just... Where were the kindest people? I mean, I'm, we know that there are nice people everywhere. But where did you feel? Did you feel like anywhere is like, wow, the people are just hands felt, down. So kind. if we're talking North America... Mm-hmm. Canadians, I feel are amazing. They're, they're wonderful people. I never had an issue with the with anyone with, with Canada. It's always friendly, always super friendly. Canadians are notorious for being polite and friendly internationally, but it's so true. The, yeah. the Canadians are really nice. So yeah, I think I think Canada. Okay. Let's, let's go for Canada. Yeah. Best parties. Oh, Vegas or New Orleans. Okay. <laughs> That's a tough one. Vegas People could think Vegas and they have their image of it. Whereas I spend a lot of time going to like the arts district and these other areas of the city, which is off the strip where normal people go. Yeah. And that's where the gold is. That is the real gold mm-hmm. of Las Vegas because loads of people live in that city. It's not just casinos and... And they get like, sick of the touristy sections for sure. Yeah. And that's where you find the good music. Like Bands like The Killers came out of Vegas. You know, you've mm-hmm. got really good rock and indie music coming out of there in the actual real city as opposed to the tourist central part. But New Orleans, 
I've got to say New Orleans is better than Vegas, in my opinion. Yeah. All right. And um, the best cycling. I know that's a tough one, but... The best cycling in North America... Might be a hard one. Might be impossible. <laughs> oh, it's tough, that, mate. It's really tough. I, I really enjoyed the Pacific Coast, and that's yeah, a really okay. hard white thing. Really enjoyed it for the social aspects, and I, I think it's really popular. I think when you think about big bike trips, a lot of people do this, and you could give yourself... Four, four weeks, five weeks, and get a good chunk of that coast done. You can even finish it in that time. So if, uh, if somebody just wants to experience a really good route, you've got pl- things like the, the massive redwood trees. You've got yeah. whales. I'd see whales on the side of the, the in the ocean. And then you get to California, and you've got San Francisco. Um, I didn't go any further south than that, so I can't really comment, but I imagine south of there, down to San Diego, and maybe LA as well could be pretty good as well. Did you try to beast your way up any of the San Francisco hills? Oh, mate, it's ridiculous. They're so steep. Yeah. That some of the, yeah, I was in a, yeah, you've got, you've got to cycle up those hills, but they're, they're the steepest hills. And they, good luck cycling up some of them. It's ridiculous. All right. Let's, let's, um, let's change gears here and talk about the life after the, the bike tour. Yeah. Um, how's the filmmaking going? Are you still doing stuff? Yeah. So I have, I think, one or two videos of America left to make, and that's that journey complete. 20,000K, just under, I think, like 19,980. Couldn't quite finish the last 20K. Feels quite nice to not have a round number. Leaves room for improvement. It definitely does, yeah. And so I'll finish them in the next week or so. But uh, this weekend, actually, I've been, this weekend coming, I've been asked by a friend who's, he's got another podcast, actually. He's a podcast guy. He, uh, his podcast is called We Need More Heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, he hasn't posted for two years or so now, but he did He did a bike trip himself. He's British, and he's just setting up a adventure company. And I won't say much more about it yet because I don't think he's there ready to launch it just yet. But uh, his adventure company and is basically providing tours for people, but also loads of advice about biking, bikepacking, hiking, uh, anything basically that floats our boat as like adventurous okay. type people. And he's asked me next weekend to go and work for him and make a, a short film, basically, about uh, uh, we're doing an expedition, a little hike up to the top of Ben Nevis in winter. So a lot of winter mountaineering. Oh, cool. With, with, with a guide and, uh, yeah, with a group of, I think, three or four of us. So I'm going there as his videographer. There's definitely, like, directed by him jobs that they need me to do, but equally given the free reign to to make a short a short film about it. So, and that's just come out of really putting myself out there for the last 18 months and plugging away and keep doing it. So because I've got so much free time, I'm able to say yes to opportunities like this. And the, the aim is to do small journeys. I cycled around Wales, like I mentioned earlier. Yeah. I cycled around Wales for a few days and I made a short video about that. And I've got all the footage I need to edit it, but... I'm going to keep doing small things, and that's my future. That's how I see see myself doing it. But equally, I don't need to do it for the money because I've got a job. So I'm going to be doing it because I love doing it, which I think gives me a freedom to not to not feel the pressure of having to produce content. Uh, I think the bike trip, I was definitely some of the videos aren't as good as others sometimes because mm-hmm. I was like set on releasing one a week. Well, that's what I was good. about to ask you is, um, did you find the movie making process a little bit monotonous when you're on the bike tour because you had made this commitment to make videos and, you know, people are out there sponsoring you and um, did it, was, was it a challenge to keep finding things to showcase and 
no, I really, I, I wouldn't say it was. I think the bite for me, the bite trip really makes its own videos. Really, like, okay. I didn't, I didn't force it. I, the good thing about a bite trip for me, especially a long one, it meant that I could, let's say, one video usually has between, I don't know, seven, uh, t seven and fourteen days. Usually about ten days in a in one fifteen minute to ten minute video. Okay. And some of the days I won't film anything. So it just it kind of bypasses a day. So I never felt the need to get my camera out. I always wanted to and try and tell a story. Oh, okay. And story is king. It's the thing that you're trying to tell. So not just filming for the sake of it, filming where am I trying to tell this story here? And the landscapes change, the people change, and the way I feel changes. There's always mm -hmm. something happening that you can move and make a story around. And if it ever felt like I didn't want to do it, I just didn't do it. So I got to Vancouver and I took three weeks off the off the videos. I got to New Orleans, I took three weeks off there. I would take big time off from the videos. And when I started again, I was so ready to get back to the camera. And I feel like that was a good way for me to do it. Yeah, just like decompress for a bit and then get back on it. Yeah. When you look back at your, your early videos compared to your later videos, how do you feel your experience and your filmmaking abilities evolved and what advice would you give to others out there that are thinking of uh, That's a good one, huh? getting That's into a good it? question. I think the overall trend is they got better, I hope. If they didn't, I'd be really upset. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, overall, if you look at the first 10 and the last 10, I feel I've got more succinct at telling a story and the aim is to keep, however long the video is, say if it's 10 minutes, is to keep somebody watching for 10 minutes and to make them feel something. And I think early days, there's definitely, I think they're okay. There's definitely something there, but you definitely get better at trying to tell a story and using different methods to do that. Um, and tips for anybody else that's interested in doing it is, I didn't, I, I watched some people's videos on YouTube, but it's trying not to watch too many. It's really doing your own thing, working it out in your own style, and just being true to yourself and just be be yourself. If you're going to film yourself on a bike trip, people want to know who you are, why you're doing it, what's your motivation, and they want to feel the journey with you. And there's a lot of videos out there of just, I don't know, really pretty drone footage along with a lot of shots of cycling, and that gets a bit boring. Uh, after one or two of them, it's good for a home movie. It's good to show yourself mm -hmm. in 10 years' time. But if you're going to try and captivate people and tell stories, it's the human aspect that does that. Okay. So being comfortable at being yourself and being open. And there is an element of putting yourself out there. And if you're not comfortable doing that, it's maybe not what's suited for you. Whereas for me, there's a, there's a side of me I put out there. I'm doing an interview with you now talking about my life and relationships and things like that. And I'm happy to do that because I feel it helps other people feel that they can do it too. And just just being yourself, that's the key. Oh, great. Are you thinking of um, making a documentary or feature film about your trip? Like, I mean, you must have hours and hours of footage that could be... <sighs> can you imagine starting that? Uh, the thought of doing that scares me. <laughs> You probably need uh, maybe somebody to help out too, just to go through, like once know. you find a direction. I'm gonna. I'm. I don't know. Is the answer? I think when I started the journey, I definitely would have been yeah, hundred percent. That's what I want to do. Okay. But if you look, I've got. I've just got over eighty edited episodes so far. So I'll finish at about eighty one, eighty two, and each one of them is at least ten minutes. Some of them are over fifteen minutes long. So the amount of hours there in all them episodes is huge and to tell us a sync story from all of that in one video 
it's doable. You'd miss a, a lot out. And I kind of feel that the YouTube channel's there. And to go to go back over it and to just do it again, I don't know if that excites me. Because I've already spent hours and yeah. hours editing all of that footage. Uh, so I think for me, it'd be that if I was to make a short film, it'd be about something else. Something about new. somebody else. Yeah, something new. Something that excites me. It's got to excite you to, to, okay. to make it film level. And I want to make something that's not about me. I want to be the filmmaker and film somebody else and be the director as, as opposed to the subject and the person making it. So that's where I'm moving towards rather than for the last 18 months, I've put myself in front of camera because there's nobody else there. Whereas now I've got the, the time and the space to, to work with other mm -hmm. people. And I think that collaboration of working with another person, that excites me as well. Are you planning any trips at the moment? you have any big ideas? Um, well, in March, I go to Kenya with work uh, for a month. So that's my next work trip. And I might try and get a little bit of a, a maybe a week of a bike trip at the end, if I can bolt that on and okay. take a flight back later. So so I've got little ideas like that. And that's one of the good things with this job is that they take me all over the world in the UK. Um, I mentioned the Ben Nevis trip. Mm -hmm. And I want to do a lot of UK trips. I, I don't really know the UK that well, as far as being off-road goes and the other day about a few uh, last week or two weeks ago i bought a i bought a new bicycle the first time i bought a new bike in years i bought a fat bike with it's a it's a canadian it's a, a, a norco norco bigfoot yeah um it's got 4.9 inch wide wheels it's ginormous it's like a it's like a motorbike wheel but uh yeah i took that out to wales it's pretty cool really cool so the, the aim is to really explore a lot of the the routes on bikepacking.com really good website if you've ever not seen it if you're interested in getting off-road they've got routes all over the world and one of my loose aims which i'm only going to say for the first time now here is i'm going to try and do every route that's in the uk on that website oh and, cool. yeah it's an achievable thing to do and the longest route there is the they've got somebody's divide devised a route which is the UK divide so that the great divide that runs the length of the yeah, yeah. Uh, the the UK of uh, the USA this one goes pretty much nearly all off road from Lands End uh, from Lands End to John O'Groats oh, cool. so the, the most southern point of England to the most northern and that looks pretty cool it'll take maybe two weeks maybe two and a bit mm -hmm. weeks depends how long you want to go so yeah doing something like that that's as long as it would be and i think doing these short trips will give me an appreciation for my own country for a change and now with the uh, the fat bike you're more it's more of a complete bike packing setup too right exactly that mate and i know we've we've discussed it really briefly but i'm i'm also keen to do a trip with you someday yeah i think that'd be pretty cool keep that on the wraps for now but we're that, that is on the down low but yeah a yeah. Uh, a trip a trip with you maybe maybe next year at some point overseas somewhere yeah that would be good that that would be a, i think that'd be a good video and it'd be a good little podcast series that's right um so where can people find you if they want to learn more about you uh, so I have a YouTube channel. If you put my name, Adam Hugel, in, you'll be able to find me there. And I have an Instagram account, which is, again, my name, Adam Hugel, with an underscore at the end. Uh, they're the two th places I post the most. I do have a website, which is adamhugel.com, 
which I've not updated for a long time. So I'd say the Instagram and the YouTube are the best two places. So you've updated your Instagram name and stuff. Uh, it used to be Adam Hugo Cycling the World. And yeah. now since I, that's kind of done, now Adam, Adam Hugo Cycling the world, does rebrand. many adventures. <laughs> yeah, I've just, I've just decided to go for my name and keep Fair it simple. Enough. So I felt like Adam Cycling the World, when you're living in Yorkshire, isn't really appropriate. I almost changed it to Adam's not cycling the world. <laughs> I thought that, but that's too long. So just my name. Yeah. All right, mate. It's been great. Um, I got to get out of here. So um, all Good the best to you and we'll keep in touch and I'll talk to you again soon. Andrew, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I think I've lost my voice after talking for so long. Oh, what are the odds of that yeah. happening? Yeah, brilliant. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Talk to you soon. Bye. Andrew, bye. It was an absolute pleasure, Adam, to, to have this opportunity to, to kind of round out my first year of bike tour adventures to, to have started and finished with you and just seen how things progress so much over a period of uh, about a year. And we are all looking forward to, to continue to watch the amazing videos that you make as you go through um, the new adventures you're going to be starting soon. In episode 27 of Bike Tour Adventures, I connect with Nima Khalkhali, an Iranian-Canadian from Vancouver, BC, that recently spent five months traveling through Europe and North Africa. Having previously done some bike touring and hiking in various parts of the world, Nima has a lot of experience and tips to share with us, not just for Northern Europe, but as well as Eastern, Southern, and North Africa. So this is a long episode, and I do apologize for that. But I think it's it's really valuable. So thank you so much, Nima, for this wonderful interview and for taking the time to provide all this information for everyone. Tune in next time on Bike Tour Adventures to catch Nima Khalkhali. Bye and keep on pedaling. I want to end the show by thanking all my listeners once again for the emails and comments I regularly receive from you. It really helps motivate me and keep me going with this project and to continue sharing people's amazing stories. If you have questions or comments, you can email me at bike at bikepackadventures.ca or go to bikepackadventures.ca and shoot me a message through the contact form. You can also check out the webpage for past podcast episodes, bikepacking routes throughout Canada, blog posts, videos, and touring tips. Lastly, I'd like to once again thank all the individuals and companies that are supporting the podcast. If you are enjoying the show and like what I'm doing, you can become one of my show supporters by going to patreon.com slash bikepackadventures. And for just a few dollars a month, you can help keep this show going. You can also help out by sending a one-time donation through PayPal. This money all goes back into the podcast, help me to cover the costs associated with running the show, buy new equipment when necessary, and produce the high-quality content that you've become accustomed to. Much appreciated, and keep on pedaling. <laughs>